There was once a time of unprecedented hope and prosperity. The nation was really the envy of the whole world for its advances in agriculture, architecture, science, education, everything you can imagine. That was amazing enough. But what was even more amazing was that this country had this single-hearted devotion to following after the heart of God. And still more amazing than that was the country's leaders saw themselves as servants of God and servants of His people. It was beautiful, it was amazing, it was a sign of hope in all that it could be. But that was then. Since then, there's been nothing short of panic and chaos. One bad leader after another, one bad decision after another. And the country is now marked by war and immorality, no regard for human life or dignity. Crime is on the rise. And the economy, I mean, let's not even talk about the economy. It seems like the headlines every day reveal the new gods of greed and selfishness. People are losing jobs by the thousands and nobody knows where to turn. Nobody knows who to look to. Nobody trusts anyone because they've been lied to so many times. And so consequently, everybody's just withdrawn to themselves and taking care of themselves, even if it's to the exclusion of their neighbor. In short, an entire country has hit the panic button because of the chaos that they find themselves in. And the year is 874 B.C. Yeah, see, you you heard me right. Uh, I wasn't talking about 2008. I wasn't talking about 2009. It's talking about 874 B.C., and I think you'll be amazed tonight at how relevant some events that happened almost 3,000 years ago are to our current circumstances in this culture that we find ourselves in today. I, see, I don't know if you're feeling this economic turn or not. I'm guessing that a lot of us do. I know a whole bunch of us in this church have lost jobs, lost money, lost retirement, at the very least lost confidence. The unemployment rate in this country is climbing. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of 7% right now. Some people project it could get as high as 10% by the end of 2009. So happy new year, Flatirons. You know, I mean, in my experience, new year's is, it's supposed to be this time where there's like this, you know, joyful optimism of a clean slate and a new start, new beginnings, new horizons, this hopeful expectancy. I mean, that's what new year's is supposed to be, right? But this year, I mean, it just feels like there's kind of a cloud hanging over New Year's, 09. I know this is a pretty scary time for a lot of us, and it's, it's, it's in situations like this, there's this really strong temptation for us to feel like we're the only ones who've ever gone through anything like this. And that would be wrong. That would be a bad assumption, because we're not. The truth is, many people in many places have gone through this, and much, much worse, and there's a lot we can learn from people who've gone through panic and chaos. Today we're going to learn a lot from the nation of Israel, and in this series we're going to learn a lot from the nation of Israel. They, they had a rich history, one of redemption and grace. They had this really great king named David for 40 years who was called a, a man after God's own heart. And he didn't rule perfectly, but he did pretty well. But toward the end of David's reign, there were some signs that things were not going to continue in the same direction they were going as one of his sons tried to steal his throne from him by trying to kill him and he chased him out into the wilderness. And then later on, another one of his sons tried to steal the throne from the heir apparent, David's son Solomon. But Solomon eventually, he prevailed. He took the throne after David died. He became king and then he settled a few old scores on his father David's behalf, Godfather style. 
A few people ended up with horse heads in their beds, stuff like that, you know. And then the nation went into unprecedented peace and prosperity. You see, Solomon, you've probably heard of him before. He, he's one of the most wise, probably second to Jesus, most wise person who ever walked the face of this earth. And he was the richest person to ever walk the face of this earth. And when he took control, for once, the, the nation of Israel was not at war, which gave Solomon time with all of his wealth to build a permanent place of worship called the temple for God. He also built himself a really great palace and things were going really, really well. And Solomon was promised that as long as he would follow after the heart of God the same way that his father David did, things would continue to go really, really well for him and really, really well for the nation. The problem with Solomon was, as wise as he was, he had a weakness. His weakness was women. He accumulated marriage after marriage, wife after wife, some to set up political alliances with neighboring countries, some in exchange for goods and services, some just out of plain lust. But by the end of his life, the Bible tells us Solomon had somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 wives, 300 concubines in his harem, many of which worshipped false gods, idols from all the countries that they came from. And the Bible tells us that not only did Solomon accommodate, create places for these wives to worship their false gods and idols, but Solomon actually worshipped those false gods and idols right alongside of them. Let's take, take time out here for a second, all right? Because you and I have a tendency to hear something like that and go, yeah, this is just primitive. I mean, that's foolish. I mean, what kind of moron carves a piece of wood or a piece of stone, sets it up on a shelf and then bows down to it and worships it as a God? I mean, who does something like that? I don't know. Let's take a look at the definition of idolatry. The definition of idolatry is this. Taking anything other than God and making it ultimate in my life. Emphasis on anything. So some people may carve pieces of wood or stone and bow down and worship them. We just have little green pieces of paper with dead guys on them. Or these monuments we build to ourselves that we sleep in. Or these four-wheeled contraptions that we drive around on. Or beauty or power or someone else's opinion of me. We could go on and on and on all day, right? So suffice it to say that Solomon was an idolater and me too. And I suspect you too. And so let's move on with the story. And God makes this decision. At the end of Solomon's life, the kingdom's going to be split in half. And that's exactly what happened. Ten tribes of Israel in the north, and one tribe of Judah in the south, and one little tribe in the middle. And this is when the chaos really began. The northern kingdom of Israel had six consecutive evil rulers, evil kings. Three assassinations in the middle of all that. I mean, total bedlam, total panic and chaos. The southern kingdom did a little bit better. They had two relatively good kings and two pretty bad ones. But the northern and southern kingdom, God's very people began to war against each other. A civil war of just unprecedented proportions. I mean, it was bloody. It was crazy. It was chaos. I mean, think American civil war and you're starting to scratch the surface. And our focus in this series is going to be on some events that went on in that northern tribe of Israel during a particular period of time. Right around 874 BC, this new king named Ahab took the throne. It's not the guy who chased after the whale, by the way. Different, different guy. And in an alliance with Phoenicia, which was this country to the northwest, he took this, this Phoenician princess to be his bride. Her, her famous name was Jezebel. If you're looking for names for your little girls, this is not the one you want to pick, all right? Jezebel. 
And she turned out to be just a devastatingly poor decision as a wife. I mean, not only did she have just horrible character, but she brought with her this worship of a false god called Baal. Now, the name Baal simply means Lord. And there were actually many different versions of Baal that were worshipped in this area at the time, which is why sometimes if you read the Bible, you'll see it referred to as, and the people worshipped the Baals plural, because there was a different bale for a different town, a different hill, a different road, whatever, different mountains, all kinds of different things. But the one that Jezebel likely worshipped was Baal, the Phoenician god of fertility and rain. You see, you see, rain was seen as the seed that fell from heaven and fell into the earth and caused things to grow. And the people of Israel had actually fallen into worship of this god before. It was King David who kind of purged the whole region of this Worship and it had never returned until now when Jezebel marries Ahab And here's the thing as evil as Ahab's predecessors were the Bible tells us they were all evil They were all murderous. They were all treacherous. The Bible tells us that Ahab was worse than all of them combined It seems that Jezebel put him right over the top as the most evil king to ever reign in Israel And to be sure the people of Israel at this point in time they have hit the panic button I mean, it's been 57 years of war Poverty, destruction, occult practices, and flat-out evil. Bad leader after bad leader, now the worst of them, and his demon bride are now in control. The king of Israel, he's worshiping and serving Baal. And it's out of this chaos, it's out of this panic, that this guy hits the scene. He's one of my favorite guys in the entire Bible. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Kings, way back in the Old Testament, chapter 17. We're going to walk through three chapters in 1 Kings over the next three weeks. So go ahead and mark this in your Bible or turn in your Flatirons Bible or check it out on the screen or in your program, wherever you got it. Take a look at this, all right? So 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, this guy hits the scene. Here he is. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishba, in Gilead. Now stop right there. All right, we're going to address a couple things. The first thing we're going to look at is this guy's name. He's got a very cool name. I named my son after this guy because it's a pretty cool name. Here's what it means. You take the prefix L, which means God. It ends with Jah, which is an abbreviation for the name of God, Jehovah. And in the middle is I. So after all that, if you strip it down, this name means my God is Jehovah. Or if you actually stripped it all the way down, it simply means this. The Lord is God. Now, let's think about that for a second. Hang on to that. In the context of all this idol worship, right? Specifically, the worship of a God named Baal, that means Lord, comes a guy out of nowhere whose name means the Lord is God. Can you sense there's going to be a confrontation coming? Now, it also says this guy, Elijah, the Lord is God, was also a Tishbite. And no one actually knows where this was. There's no remains of a place called Tishba that anybody can find. All we know is that he was from the wilderness of Gilead, kind of to the southeast, which was a a place of rough and and rugged settlers, people who wore camel skins and ate bugs, like people from Wyoming, you know, (laughs) like that. People who know how to survive in tough circumstances. So this nobody from nowhere with no credentials and no family history with a very cool name appears on the scene and he totally makes a scene. Look at what happens next. Go back to verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead, said to Ahab. So he walks up to this evil king Ahab. And he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. There's a word for what Elijah just did there. Crazy. 
That's what that word is. I mean, this is, this is insanity. I mean, Scripture tells us that Jezebel, Ahab's wife, hated anyone who worshipped the God of Israel, Jehovah. And that's Elijah's name. Ahab had ultimate power. He could have had Elijah killed right there on the spot. Yet Elijah confidently walks up to this evil king and says, Listen, here's the deal. There's only one God. And by the way, it's not that one that you're bowing down to. It's the one that I serve. And here's the way it's going to work. The God I serve has told me that it's going to be rough around here for a while. There's not going to be rain. There's not even going to be dew on the ground until I give the word. That, that's how this is going to play out. And time out, just to paint the picture for you of what's going to happen here, all right? In an agricultural society, this is a prediction of financial collapse. That's what he's saying. I mean, it doesn't take long in an ag- agricultural society in a, in a place like this, an arid place that doesn't get much rain anyway. You go without rain very long, all of a sudden everything stops growing and all of a sudden your economy falls apart. People lose jobs and people die. And Elijah says there's going to be a drought like you've never seen before. No rain, not even dew on the ground. And he doesn't even say for how long. He's predicting panic. And, and by the way, what kind of God was Baal supposed to be? The God of... Rain and fertility. And Elijah's saying it's not going to rain and nothing's going to grow. Can you see what Elijah's doing? Elijah's picking a fight. He's setting up a confrontation where someone has to win and someone has to lose. Either Baal is God and it'll keep raining and things will keep growing despite what Elijah and his God have to say, or Jehovah is God and Baal is not. That's the way this thing's going to play out. And Elijah sets it up that way on purpose. I mean, that's why I like this guy. This guy's got courage. He's got strength and he's just a little bit off, right? I mean, he's just a little bit crazy. And it's in this moment where you would totally expect all the fireworks to really begin that this curveball hits. Look at this, verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook there and I've ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. I mean, what? I mean, if I'm Elijah, I'm going, wait a second, God. I mean, I'm just getting started. I got more stuff to say. I got more stuff to do. I've only spoken one line in this movie so far, and you're throwing me off the set, and I'm supposed to hide where? I don't even know where that place is. I mean, I thought that you got my back, God. I mean, let's get it on right now. Let's have this confrontation right now. What's the deal? This is not part of the plan. I mean, that's what I would have said. I would have hit the panic button. There's no question about it. But Elijah, he, he may have thought or said all that. We don't know. But what we do know is that he obeyed. He does not hit the panic button. And what's really, really interesting to me is that God sends Elijah to this place called Kareth. Kareth literally means to be cut down. It's almost like God's taking this guy who could arrogantly consider himself pretty good, a pretty big deal, pretty special. And he's taking him and he's putting him in a place where he's going to cut him down to size. See, I think that's exactly what God's doing. I mean, look at how he takes care of him. It's not fancy. He puts him beside a little stream where he has to lap water out of it like a dog. And that's helpful because there's not going to be rain for a while, but it's certainly not fancy. And he gets his meat and his bread from ravens morning and evening. See, I don't know if you've ever spent much time around ravens, but they're not very pretty birds. They don't release these at weddings. You know, they're not a symbol of hope or peace or anything like that. In fact, they're symbols of of evil in a lot of places. And they're scavenger birds. They eat dead things. That's what they do. And so here's Elijah, 
the strong, mighty man of God lapping water out of a little stream and eating food that's been regurgitated by ravens. Sounds like a great time. You ever ended up somewhere and thought, how in the world did I end up here? See, I think that's what's going through Elijah's mind right now. How in the world did I get here? I'm supposed to be, and you can fill in the blank, anywhere but here. You see, the whole region has gone under surveillance. Elijah is the most wanted man in the whole country right now. And all of the resources of Ahab and Jezebel are pursuing this fugitive named Elijah. And it's in circumstances like this that it's really easy to miss what's really happening, right? It's very hard to see beyond your circumstances when you don't understand them, right? So Elijah finds him in this place where it's not fancy, it's not comfortable, but God is doing something for Elijah, right? He's protecting him, number one. He's protecting him from Ahab and Jezebel, who with every day that goes by and it doesn't rain, they get more and more furious. Because every day that it goes by with, without rain, and they keep making sacrifices to their god, Baal, who's supposed to make it rain, they lose credibility in the sight of the people they're supposed to lead. And they've got to find this guy, Elijah, or they're going to lose the whole kingdom. But God is protecting Elijah. He's also doing something else for Elijah. He's providing for him. I mean, in the midst of this really chaotic time, when everyone is hitting the panic button, again, I'm sure Elijah would have much preferred the Hilton, but he got a dry creek bed with rocks next to a little stream with room service provided by birds. And it's in the midst of this protecting and provision that that Elijah would have never been able to predict that, that, that God does another P for him. He's preparing Elijah. This is kind of like spiritual boot camp for Elijah because God has big, big plans for Elijah. We're going to see that happen in the next couple of weeks in here. But apparently, God needed to do something in Elijah's heart and in Elijah's mind first. Namely, he had to cut him down to size, which is never a comfortable process, right? It's never comfortable at all. And isn't this true? Isn't it always easier to see how God was doing something in your life than how God is doing something in your life? That's my story. I can look back and go, oh yeah, God was doing that all along. But it's when I'm in the middle of my circumstances that I go, God, where are you? What are you doing? What's the deal? Where's the plan? This isn't what I thought would happen. And much like the current predictions in our culture are that it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's definitely what happened in Elijah's life. Look at this, verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Did you notice that time signature? We don't know how long this was. We don't know if he sat by that brook for a couple weeks, a couple months, or a year. Who knows? All we know now is that Elijah's source of life is gone. I mean, you can't go without water for very long. I mean, again, this is an opportunity to hit the panic button. But let's see what happens. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Now let me paint the picture for you here, okay? This is God humiliating Elijah. And this is a humiliating experience. Not only does God tell Elijah to go to a place that's known for being corrupt and evil. Zarephath was between these two towns known as Tyre and Sidon. Horrible reputation. Right up there with like Sodom and Gomorrah. They were known for worshiping idols, and this is right in the neighborhood where Jezebel grew up. And God tells Elijah, go there. And by the way, the person that's going to take care of you there is a widow. 
Which is the part where if I'm Elijah, I'm going, hold on a second. I'm going to be taken care of by a widow? No, you take care of widows in this culture, but you don't get taken care of by a widow. If you're being taken care of by a widow in this culture, that means you're either really, really old, really, really young, or really, really incapable. This is humiliating. Apparently God is not done with cutting Elijah down to size, even though he's moving his location. You ever feel like God's been working on you and just won't leave you alone? I mean, you ever want to say to God, God, that's enough, okay? No more life lessons anymore. I don't want to learn anymore. I don't want to grow anymore. I don't want to be stretched anymore. I don't want to be refined anymore. Would you just leave me alone and butt out of my life? Have you ever wanted to say that? Or have you ever said it like I have? See, that's what I would do. That's probably what Elijah was feeling. But again, Elijah, he obeys. Look at this, verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I can have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called and said, Hey, would you please bring me a piece of bread as well? As surely as the Lord, notice what she says, Your God lives. She replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil and a jug. I was going to gather a few sticks to take home, make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. That's how bad things have gotten. That's the crisis. The panic button has been hit. And Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me and what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Again, God provides, but it's in a totally unorthodox, unforeseen, very strange way, right? I mean, it's almost like God is teaching Elijah to rely on him for everything. So Elijah... Here he is again, this mighty man of God, being taken care of by God, sheltered by a widow in a foreign place, hiding from people who want to kill him on the spot the first time they see him. I mean, this is humbling. And just when the crisis could not possibly get any worse, it does. Look at verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And again, we don't know how much time passed in the course of this, but I I think it's a safe assumption to say that Elijah probably loved this boy. I mean, Elijah had no family, no friends. The closest thing he had to friends up until this point was a bunch of ravens. Probably didn't take him long to connect with this boy and his mother to, to love them, to be devoted to him. And now this boy is dead and the mom is pointing the finger at him. And who can blame her, right? I mean, it's often when the worst of the worst happens to us that we have a tendency to point the finger at the first person standing closest to us, right? That's just the way it works. And so she hits the panic button, and rightfully so. And I love Elijah's response. Look at this, verse 19. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him into the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? 
Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. I love the way he treats this widow. He doesn't yell at her. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't try to defend himself. He just says, give give me the boy. For some reason, I don't know if she sees something in his eyes, but she trusts him, and so she hands over her son. Elijah doesn't hit the panic button, but he takes this boy up into the upper room where he's been staying, and he has it out with God. See, he's learned something about God. He knows that God doesn't fall asleep at the wheel. God doesn't miss the details. If he's learned anything, he knows that God can take care of the details. So he says, God, what's the deal here? And he asks God to raise this boy to life, which I just think reveals this bold, courageous nature that Elijah had because there was no precedent in human history for God ever raising anyone from the dead up until this point. Elijah didn't have a Bible to thumb through to go, oh yeah, you've done this a couple times. He had none of that, but he's learned something about God in his time at Kareth and Zarephath. As each day went by without rain and God displayed his power, as each day those ravens came and delivered his food and displayed his provision, and as each day that pot of, of oil and flour was full and God revealed his faithfulness, Elijah's learned something about God here. So he asked God to do what only God can do. And let's see what happens. Look at verse 22. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked the child up and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. God does what only God can do. And there aren't words to describe what that woman felt and what Elijah felt as that boy started to breathe again. But both the woman, Elijah, and that boy, I bet they could all say with confidence, Elijah, the Lord is God. Lord is God. You see, every expert says things are going to get worse before they get better. And many who haven't hit the panic button already, they will before the end of 2009. Whether it's job loss, the falling of a stock market, the cost of oil, conflict in other countries, school violence, pollution, all of it combined. You know what? There is more than enough going wrong with this world to justify you and me hitting the panic button. If. Big if. If there is no God. Or if there is a God, but he just doesn't care at all. See, I think the thing we're going to continue to learn from Elijah is there is a God. The Lord is God, Elijah, and he cares. And that changes everything. See, here's the thing. I I have no idea what this year holds. I have no idea. I I can assume some things. I, I can hope that I'll be around at the end of this year, but I have no idea what tomorrow holds, much less this year I know that there's a high potential for two things happening in my life and yours this year. Good and bad. Good and bad. I can see some some of both that are already probably going to happen in this year. I've got a grandfather who's probably going to die any day. My dad's watching it happen back in Kentucky. That's bad. There's good that's supposed to happen in my family this year. I'm supposed to be outnumbered by my children come June. Got another one on the way. Yeah, that's that's scary because now it's three against two, you know. 
Here's the thing. I, I don't know what this year holds, and it's probably on a bumper sticker somewhere, all right? I know, but it's true. I just know who holds this year. I know who holds this year, good or bad. Because the truth is that even as I talk about this baby that's supposed to be born into my house, that really hurts to even hear for a lot of people because I've sat in that seat before. And you suffered the loss of a child or a miscarriage and you hear somebody else is pregnant, oh, man, that stings. Man, that hurts. And could this year be just another year of that pain? Could this year be just another year of losing people like this past year has been? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what this year holds. All I know is who holds the year. So let's begin this year by asking some questions. How about that? Well, what if we ask these questions this year? Write, write these down, all right? Let's ask these questions to God. First one's this. God, why do you have me here? What's the deal with here? Whether here is the physical place you are, the spiritual place you are, the mental place you are, the emotional place you are, whatever your circumstances are, whatever here for you is, let's just ask God, God, why? Why am I here? And the next question is this, God, what are you trying to teach me here? What are you trying to teach me in the midst of these circumstances? What are you trying to do in my heart, in my mind? How are you trying to refine me, stretch me, change me? Here, God, what are you, here's the third question. God, what are you preparing me for here? What, what is it about here that I have to go through so I can be there and do that? What is there and what is that? See, here's the thing. No matter what happens this year, no matter how desperate our circumstances get, when we're tempted to hit the panic button and spin out, could we remember Elijah? And more importantly, remember what his name means? The Lord is God. You see, this is the God who in the midst of the difficult, the scary, the tragic, the unknown, He protects, He provides, and He prepares, even when we can't see it. This year, again, just like last year, could we forget about resolutions? Could we totally forget about making lists of a bunch of things that we won't do come February? I mean, can we just set, set those goals aside? And they're all probably really good goals, but could they all be secondary to just one thing this year? Could we resolve ourselves to one thing this year? No matter what happens, no matter the height, no matter the depth, no matter the width of the pain, the sadness, the difficulty, the ups, the downs that come our way, financially, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically, could we resolve ourselves this year, no matter what happens, to not hitting the panic button but instead to rely on the God of Elijah. See, I have a prayer. I want to I pray for us as we start this new year. It's a prayer that Paul prayed for the churches in Ephesus a couple thousand years ago. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. If you would, just bow your heads. This is our prayer. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Jesus for you. 
And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. See, in the midst of whatever this year brings, good, bad, in between, could we resolve ourselves to saying simply, the Lord is God. I'm here because He brought me here. He's keeping me here. He's protecting and providing and preparing me here. And so I will trust Him right here. 